Good evening. Good evening. How are you doing? Um, we are going to be looking at some questions tonight, which um, it's, a lot of it is going to be driven by what you want to talk about. Um, and some of it is going to be driven what I've guessed that you might want to talk about, and some of it we'll just see. Um, so what I wanted to do is, because we've been going through, I imagine most of us come to Kings on a Sunday, there might be a handful who don't. And so what we've been doing is doing a series on the whole of the book of the Exodus, the biblical story, and going through the book uh, a section at a time. We're only, only three or four weeks in at the moment. So what we've done is we've, we've said actually there's some issues that of some like historical or theological complexity that we have shunted into an evening seminar so that people, some of us can ask some questions that we wouldn't on a Sunday often be able to ask, but also because they're just things that would be too tricky to engage with publicly and briefly and clearly in a setting where there's a lot of people like kings on a Sunday who don't know the Bible that well or who have, are not Christians or whatever. So this is a setting in which to try and do that and explore them in a bit more detail. Um, so I'm going to have the six issues, which Paul put, put up page number one. There's six kinds of issues that I have guessed that might be interesting issues for people to explore. Um, and I've broken them in three categories, which are, th- which are things which people sometimes ask about the Exodus story. Last year we did this on Genesis, and there were loads of questions people already had. Um, I want to know about dinosaurs. I want to know about evolution, that sort of thing. Whereas this year, I feel like with Exodus, it may be that a lot of us don't come with quite so many big questions already set, although you may. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'll introduce the things that I was going to talk about, and then I'll get you to talk on your tables, just if you haven't already, say hi, meet one another, and then say, actually, here's an issue that I would be interested in looking at, either one that's on this list or one that's not at all, and see, just catch me out and, and go, and we'll see what happens. And if I don't know, I'll just tell you I don't know, um, but, and we can work it out from there. But the six issues that I thought you might want to talk about and that we, ha- we are not going to address in detail on a Sunday... There's a, two textual questions, as in about the, the text that we have. One of them, people often ask, who wrote it? Did Moses write it? Is the, is, are the first five books all written by Moses? Or are they written much later than that? Or are they written sometimes early and sometimes much later? People often ask that question. Second question, how do, how do you translate and what do you make of the implications of translating a, this Hebrew word, in the singular it's eved, and in the plural avadim, which is, well, it's difficult to translate. Is it a slave? Is it a servant? How do you deal with it? And what implications, if any, does it have for the way you think about slavery in the Exodus story? Because you may know Israel, of course, are slaves. They let, come out of slavery to Pharaoh. But then very quickly we're hearing about people who might work for them in their houses, and in some translations it describes them as slaves. And it feels a bit weird that you have a story where Israel is let out of slavery and then immediately starts talking about owning slaves themselves, if, if that's what's happening. So what do you do with that? That's an important question. Then there's two historical questions. When was the Exodus? Where did it happen? Some people are very interested in this. and Well, of course, it, how does it fit with Egyptian history and how does it fit with other Bronze Age history? And then evidence. Is there any evidence for the wilderness wandering? And, and if not, isn't that an enormous problem? Like, how, do you, how can you prove it? And then the theological questions, which I suspect are more, maybe a bit more common, but they're also deeper and harder sometimes. What do we do with the, what's going on with all the divine violence in the book? God sending plagues on an entire nation. God killing people. God subsequently telling people at times to kill people. What on earth do we do with that theologically? How does that, how does that, is that not the same thing as people going on a holy war today, for instance? And then the hardening of Pharaoh, which 
Steve, if you were here on Sunday, Steve, our senior pastor, was speaking on Exodus, uh, Exodus 7 and kind of managed to skirt over. He knew we were doing it this evening, so he went, I'm not going to open that up because that's not an easy thing to tackle in a, in, a, in a drive-by. You have to sort of engage with it a bit more. So we're going to look a little bit at like, the hardening of Pharaoh and what implications, if any, that has for the way we think about God and unbelief today. Okay, so I picked six. You may be thinking, those are not the six I wanted at all. I want these issues. But I would now love it if you would turn on your tables and whether you know the people near you or not, if you don't, say hi. If you do, just say, well, okay, I came with this question or these questions or I came with no questions, but I quite like the look of that one or something else. Okay, just maybe turn, spend a couple of minutes just kicking that around. What would you like to talk about? Okay, let's, um, I'll try and get a bit of feedback from that, but I'm going to try and get feedback in a time-honored tradition of using the clapometer, okay? The clapometer is a device whereby if you, you probably, many of you know the clapometer, if you, if you agree with the question and you think this is a good question, then you clap in proportion to how important you think it is. And if you think, I don't want a piece of that, then you just stay quiet, okay? So, And what we'll do is we'll do seven categories, right? I'll go through all six of these, and then category seven will be something that's not on the list that you want to ask, okay? So, question one, who wants to talk about authorship? A ripple, okay? Who wants to talk about the translation of slave servants? A slightly louder ripple. Who wants to talk about date? Who wants to talk about the evidence thing? Okay, who wants to talk about divine violence? And who wants to talk about the hardening of Pharaoh? Okay? So divine violence is winning at the moment. And then who has, who said actually the main thing for me is a question that's not on the list? No clap, but a a very tall hand from David Kimmins, I've noticed, okay? Why am I not surprised, Professor Kimmins? That's excellent. Okay, good. Um, That's, that's, this will be good. This will, I hope this will work then, because I've got some material on a number of those things that will be hopefully-ish in proportion to those questions. All right, let's start then with, um, with the question of authorship, because this will be quite quick. Um, it may or may not be. You may have more questions, but I think a way I would come at it would be quite quick. So next page. Did Moses write the Pentateuch? Okay, here's two texts to think about that would suggest, yes, he did. Okay? This is Jesus speaking in the, in the New Testament. And as for the dead being raised, this is Jesus talking to the Sadducees. They've asked him a silly question. They're trying to, it's a bit of a gotcha question about resurrection. And he says, and as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, they didn't have chapters, right? So you can't say, haven't you read Exodus 3? Because there is no Exodus 3. Haven't you read in the bit about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So you notice, haven't you read in the book of Moses? Jesus just says, this is a story from Exodus. It's the story, if you were here two weeks back, a story I preached on, the burning bush story. And Jesus just says, this is in the book of Moses. So that would suggest, yes, Moses wrote it. Similarly, Luke, speaking of Jesus on the road to Emmaus and after, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Moses meaning the book of the law. That is, Moses wrote the law. And the prophets, which is nearly everything else. There's another category of books called the writings, but Luke is referring to those two at this point. And that would again suggest Moses is just Jesus' way and Luke's way of referring to the law. So, yes, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Or did he? Okay. Next text. 
couple of texts that I suspect Moses, in fact, I think it's pretty obvious Moses didn't write in the Pentateuch to get you started, okay? So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. Generally a good sign that the guy didn't write it. Uh, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now, admittedly, that does put one slightly quirky scenario there is that Moses is lying about his own death and is decided to go, the reason they've never found me is because I wasn't dead and I ran away, which would be very weird, but I don't think that's what anyone really thinks had happened. And that makes it clear that at least that bit Moses did not write, even though it's in the Pentateuch. Right? So I imagine we'd agree there. There's another, there's another interesting example of a text I don't think Moses wrote. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more humble than all the people who are on the face of the earth. I am the humblest man who's ever been alive would be a very, very strange sentence. And it certainly has the ring of being written after the event by somebody else. And I think as soon as you see that, and you begin, there are actually other examples that are perhaps less obvious, I think it makes you think, right, so... Jesus attributes the writing of all of these works to Moses, and yet, in the final form we have it, Moses can't have been the only author. There must have been other people contributing, and then the question is how much and where, and sometimes the answer is we don't, we're not 100% sure. And if you know anything about so biblical, the history of biblical studies, there's a, a big movement in, the, in Germany in the 19th and into the 20th century saying, Really, we've got four different documents here, and they've all been edited together. And I wouldn't go with a lot of the things that theory says, but what, where I think we do need to acknowledge it is in its final form, and this is where I think a lot of even very conservative biblical scholars would be, in its final form, the book that we have now from Genesis to Deuteronomy was not all written by Moses. It has been edited since Moses died. But all of the tradition, the material, and the authoritative material that Moses receives on the mountain and gives to Israel does go back to Moses. And therefore, you have a, a large body of material that is of mosaic origin revealed to Moses through the period of the mountain and in the wilderness. But it has been, the fancy word for it is redacted or edited or kind of editorial comments added and shaped and actually done sometimes quite deliberately to draw out some themes that became very big in Israel's history later on in their story. So you can see indications of the monarchy in the story of Moses, uh, which at the time they didn't have a king, but they were looking to the day when they would have. And so there's editing which has been taking place to try and highlight those themes, which actually is very similar to what happens in some ways with the gospel writers, who also edit their sources. And that's what Luke does. So that would be a couple of things to think about when it comes to whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch. We could come back to that later if you have further questions. But that's a, that would be a... So there's basically a yes and a no, which I'm afraid is often the answer to some of these things when you're dealing with tricky biblical issues. I think mostly yes, but in its final form, not entirely. And I think there's a couple of good reasons, as I say, to think that. Okay? So that's the technical question. We're going to jump over the slave-servant thing um, for, for now. We will return to it. Um, but maybe we could look just at another brief one, just sort of, I was going to say, knock on the head. Um, the historical questions, when was the Exodus, and then what is the evidence for it, particularly when it comes to, hang on a second, are you telling me that two million people left Egypt and left no trace that they were there? Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the hard edge of the question you have to look at and go, okay, well, what are we going to do with that? Okay. But I'll take the question of date first, which I know sounds weird, but bear with me. We'll do date first and then evidence, because I think the evidence is almost independent of the dates, for a reason I hope will be clear in a moment. There's two main dates that people pitch for the Exodus, and some 
this is the sort of thing that some, there's, a, there's a nerdy streak in those of us, and I, you know, I'm not at all nerdy, as you know, theologically, but in some of us, some people in the church have a nerdy streak where they like fitting together ancient chronology of Egyptian kings, Bronze Age Canaan, and the Bible to see how do we line these three up. And actually, any other sources, you sometimes can. You can look at the Hittites or the Babylonians or whatever it might be, and Sumerian king lists, and you think, oh, right, okay, there's some parallels. So that's, this, that's what we're doing for a moment with, with the date. And the two main dates that are given, the more usually conservative dates, that is, people who are more uh, often with a higher view of Scripture would be more likely, although not always, to say, I think that Exodus was further back in time. That is 1450 BC, which is obviously, because the dates are BC, they are, the, the larger the number, the further ago it was. Um, and it, has anybody seen Netflix's Patterns of Evidence on this, by the way? Netflix, it's, they, they've produced a, like a documentary movie about the date of the Exodus, which doesn't sound like the kind of thing Netflix would do. But if you have, it's a really interesting watch because it's quite balanced. The guy in, on the subject of the documentary is trying to suggest, and he does suggest quite strongly, I think, that there is a reason to suggest that the biblical Exodus should be dated much earlier than people usually have and I'm going to go around and consult a lot of research scholars around the world and try and make that case. Most research scholars are still at the later of the two dates, that is the bottom one. But he makes quite an interesting way of doing it, and the documentary is quite fair, because it gives all the reasons to disagree with them as well. So it's quite well done. Anyway, you, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you might want to follow it up with that. Um, but the reasons for saying that it's a long, long time back would generally be, there's two or three main reasons, but there would be um, the, if, you, what, if what you do is you add up biblical dates and you start with a date which you know and then you add to it another number that you know and you end up at 1450. So really, people go to 1 Kings 6, 1 and you know when Solomon built the temple. So by the time we're at David and Solomon, we know where we are in time. We know Israel split into two in about 930 and we know Solomon was king from 970 and we know David was king from about 1010. So if you know when Solomon built the temple, you can add 480 years and figure out when the Exodus would have been because 1 Kings 6 says it was 480 years since the Exodus. Now the problem, with, yeah, you think, well that just settles it then. Why, why are we talking about it? The problem is that 480 is 12 times 40 and that sometimes 40 years is used as a stylistic number in the Bible for a generation. And in fact, we still use some numbers that way today, although we don't have a generational number. But some numbers have symbolic meaning in our culture that might not quite be the same as the total numbers. And, so there's, and the Bible does that as well. So there are, that's, that's the count. That's what some people said. Oh, no, that doesn't mean 480 literal chronological years. It means 12 generations. So that's possible. We don't know. And then there's a similar argument about 300 years in Canaan by the time about 1100 from the book of Judges, if you're interested in following up that text. And if you add up all the reigns in Judges, you end up with a certain number as well. So the net effect of those three makes a, a lot of more, and a couple of other arguments as well, makes a lot of more conservative scholars say it's an older exodus. There are some who would say, no, it's more recent than that, though, because they, they would say, ah, but when you try and fit this together with the Egyptian sources, how many of us have been around the Egyptian section of the British Museum? I mean, this, again, if you're a nerd and I'm not suggesting that Ian Moore or Helen Fuller or me are, or anyone else, but if you were, the, a lot of the, the biblical chronology stuff in the British Museum is absolutely amazing. The Assyrian stuff, I think, is particularly outstanding. And it's uh, like these 
if you go, it's just remarkable, but, but also kind of scary, because you realize there's a very demonic sort of feel to a lot of these gods, and, but there's artifacts and pictures of, you know, the first ever statue of an Israelite king. I mean, it's just really very interesting stuff. And But one of the things you have there, of course, is a big, big section on the pharaohs, and when I went recently... I was going, I was nerding out on the Assyrian stuff, going, this is all in the Bible. And meanwhile, all of the tourists, if I can say it, including, I'm sure, some of us, are just marveling at the Egyptian stuff, because the, the Egyptians capture our imagination. And Ramesses II is often, I think, probably the most well-known. It's probably a name that many of us would know. Um, and he's, he's reigned in a particular period. And if you think, as the text of Exodus suggests that the town that the Israelites had to build while they were slaves called Pyramuses. And if you think, therefore, that is the name of the city that Ramesses built, which it sounds like it was, then that would suggest that Israel was there when Ramesses was ruling, which is much later than the date at the top. And similarly, there are arguments both on the level of Egyptian control in Canaan and the archaeology of Canaan uh, that suggest that, there are a, that we should use a later date. And people argue the toss on both sides. Now, some of you will be going, why does it matter? And I would say, to, in almost all situations, it doesn't really, uh, to my mind, and I don't feel particularly strongly about it. I generally, personally, am more at the bottom, um, but I could, am easily, and I found the Netflix documentary fascinating because I thought, actually, there's some really interesting things to think about, which I hadn't considered for the top case as well. I don't think it makes an enormous amount of difference to your understanding of Scripture, but I think it does for those of us who want to see how do we fit this together with other material can be quite an interesting question. Where you do end up having to do a bit more of that kind of work is obviously on the question of evidence. So I want to show you a map. A map, of course, is not in itself evidence at all. This is just somebody today drawing the journey, and it's probably fairly small, but you don't need to be able to see the names of all the places anyway. But this is, a, I think, a pretty good guess um, as to the route of the Exodus. So where they went when. And obviously they come out of northern Egypt and head right the way down south. The Mount Sinai here is where they spend an awful lot of their time. And then, of course, they are wandering around in a big loop for, not literally round in a loop, they're staying still for much of it. Um, but that sort of period in the wilderness of Zin, um, up to the right, uh, towards the top right, and then they're there for about 38 years before they finally cross the brook Zered, which is, if you can see, just above the word Edom, sort of top right, they cross that brook 38 years after they camp at Kadesh Barnea. So it takes them a long, long time. And that's not because they get lost. Um, just to say, sometimes people think, I think they're just wandering around going, where? I'm sure it was here somewhere. Where is the promised land? Anybody seen the promised land? Where are the maps? You know, it's not that at all. It's that the presence of God, the cloud descends, and they're not allowed to move unless the presence of God moves, so they don't. Um, because God is judging them, as we will, for reasons we will see later in the series in some ways. Um, now, the reason I'm putting that up, though, is because I want you to think for a moment, can you, can, can you think of any other mass migration of mil, a million or more people in this part of the world, in the Arabian desert through to Sinai Peninsula area, that in three and a half thousand years would have left no trace of them ever having been there? Anybody think of any mass migrations that have taken place in the Middle East in even the last five years, in which hundreds of thousands or even millions of people have moved and set up temporary shelters that three and a half thousand years later would leave no trace. I'm hoping that some of you can, because that's been a lot on the news in the last couple of years. And in a way, I think it's just important to bear in mind, of course, if people build cities, then you leave a trace. Um, and actually, there is, of course, trace of people from the Levant, that is the broad name for the, the, the area we now know as Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and so on. There's, there's evidence of people from the Levant living in Egypt during this period, 
And of course, there's evidence of Israel entering Canaan in the late Bronze Age. What we don't have is evidence for the gap between the two wandering in the desert, but I suggest that you simply wouldn't have any more than any other group of people who are camping for 40 years would leave a trace three millennia after they'd been there. And so actually, although, so in a way, I'm saying, no, there isn't any evidence for the wilderness wandering. And I don't think that matters one bit. I don't think there would be. And there's a line that sometimes you, you, you find in sort of various ancient scholarship. They say that absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. Because sometimes, sometimes it's just a question of, is there, would we expect there to be evidence of this particular kind of dwelling or settlement that much later? And I think the answer is no, we wouldn't. So for me, that's not a concern. I think you do have some... The chronological stuff has to be figured out, and particularly what you think about the invasion of Canaan and how you work that out with the chronology. But I don't think you have to worry too much about the wanderings because I don't think you'd expect it to leave a trace, so it hasn't. Okay? So those are, those are two or three short issues, okay? So on your table, just turn, turn around and just to the person either next to you or on your table and just say, is there anything in that that prompted you to go, that is not satisfactory, or that's made me think of another question that I have, or, oh, okay, interesting, that's all fine, but that isn't really what I wanted to know anyway, okay? Anything like that is fine, but just a couple of minutes just processing that. Okay, so those in a way are the, uh, the three questions that we can, I'm going to say, um, that's not going to resolve everything to everyone's satisfaction at this point, and what we'll, we will have, we'll do questions, we'll be done by 9.30 by the way, definitely, um, and, but we'll have questions towards the end because then we'll see what, we, what is left over, um, but, so we will return to that if you want to come back to that, those things. But it's just good to kind of keep thinking, oh, okay, that helps, or no, that was mildly interesting but pretty trivial to me, and that's absolutely fine if it was. Um, what I want to do now is I want to pick up the issue briefly of, of translation when it comes to the words slave and servant. And I was going to do this by, playing, by means of playing a, a 13-minute clip of a video, but based on the clapometer, I actually think it would be better to spend more time on the other issues. Um, but I'm going to link, I'm going to tell you about that video anyway, because I think it's one of the best lectures of, actually, I think it's one of the best apologetics lectures I've heard. It's by a guy called Peter Williams, who is a, um, if you were to put on YouTube, Peter Williams' Slavery in the Bible, it is a fantastic lecture, because what he does in addressing the issue of, he basically makes the problem really difficult, like, hey, this is why it looks like the Bible supports slavery. He, this guy, by the way, when I say he's an, an academic, I mean, like, he's on the translation committee for the Bible. You mean, so he works on the translation committee for the ESV. So when he's talking about translating, I mean, I'm saying the Bible passage I read from on a Sunday was translated by him. So he's like uber scholar kind of guy. And he's a warden at Timdale House in Cambridge. He's a very, very smart guy. And a very orthodox conservative Christian. But, wait, but he wants to kind of, you've got to feel the force of this. Does the Bible support slavery? And the way he goes at it in, early on is really interesting because he basically makes a big play of the issue of translation and says, isn't it interesting that if you... How many of us still read the King James? How many of us, that's, our preferred, that's the translation we feel most comfortable with. Okay, so a number of us still do. So you'd find, if you're reading the King James, that a lot of the translation... And you guys are going to feel smug now, okay? Um, because although I don't tend to read the King James because of the form, it just not, doesn't suit me so well, and it's harder for new people often to understand. For many who are familiar with it, it's both beautiful prose, but it's also on this issue, I think, a better translation. Because, and what he does is he said, look, in the 17th century... 
You, the, the word eved, which is the, just one Hebrew word, by the way, in the plural it's avadim. And in fact, you can still see traces of that word in your Bible, ebed. So a name like Obed um, or Obed-Edom means sl- servant or slave of Edom. Uh, you'd find it in, I think it's even in Arabic. Um, what's the name? Ever, uh, no, this is now escaping me. But there's a name, there's a, a name that we know now that is, sounds exactly like that name in Arabic, and I can't remember what it is. But anyway, so, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of very common word in the Bible. And in the King James, it's almost always translated servant. In fact, there's only one or two occurrences in the whole Old Testament of the word slave at all in the King James. Whereas by the time you read a Bible now, you'd have hundreds of occurrences of the word slave, and a lot of the word servant have been turned into slave. And of course, one of the you, people go, what are they doing monkeying around with the Bible like this? And the, the, what's behind it is that in translation philosophy, there is no English word that equates to this concept in the ancient world. Because in our, in, and of course the King James is translated before, and it wasn't actually before, but it was before most people knew about and had un- understood the realities of transatlantic slavery or whatever. So the idea of a, sl- a servant slave, was they didn't carry with it the same, if you like, history and legacy that we do. So when they saw a word, like they, they, they'd say, well, okay, so you work for this person, and you are part of their family, and you are an heir to their estates, and you get holiday. But you're also an unpaid person who can, if you are captured by another nation, be compelled to work for you instead of going to what we now do, send someone to a prisoner of war camp or something. Well, they didn't do that. So in some ways, that sounds a bit like what we call slaves, but in some ways it sounds more like what you would have called a servant a hundred years ago. In the the sense of a domestic, you know, basically, are are, are we dealing with 12 years a slave or are we dealing with Downton Abbey? Now, obviously, we're dealing with neither, but you get the point, right? That, that actually, if one word re- reflected both those realities, you'd have to do a lot of work to understand what was going on. And this table gives you an example of how that's true and why. It's based on Peter Williams' table. I've added a couple of other lines. So this will make distinctions between the way that the word eved is used in the Bible and the way in which the word slave, doulos, is used, the Greek word doulos, which is the equivalent in Rome, and the way that the word slave in English would be used of New World slavery, or Atlantic slavery, which is obviously not just in the New World, but that's the bit we know most about. So, do you get holiday? Well, in Israel, yes. In Rome, no. And actually, in the New World, you sometimes did. You would have off, there would be a Sabbath or a day off because of the, don't get me started on the hypocrisy of that. We're going to own slaves and then give them a Sunday. I mean, anyway, let's not go there. But the point is, there was actually, that, that was a slightly strange Christian legacy to the New World slave trade. Do you, have, do you give enough, is there enough food provided? Is that legislated that you must provide food for your slave? Yes, in it, or your servants. You see, this is the difficulty of the word. In Israel, yes. In Rome, no. In New World slavery, no. Is there legal redress, which is a really important one? That is, can you, do you have access as an eved to the law courts? Can you say, I think this has been unjust. This has broken my, in modern terms, my constitutional rights, my rights before God? Well, in Judaism, you can. So the way in which the Eved, or the Avadim, functioned in Judaism, yes, you can say. That, but of course, you're being loaded onto a ship on the coast of Ghana in 1780. You can't say, I want to talk to my lawyer, or if you do, no one's going to listen. Right? So there is actually a very significant difference there between New World slavery and this. Whether, and I, mean, I don't know, personally, I don't, at the end of the lecture, Peter Williams in the end says, I would prefer every reference of that word in the entire Old Testament to be translated servant. I think it's a better translation. But the reality is the word, the Hebrew word is neither. And that's the tricky thing about it. 
Are there sexual protections? For, this is obviously particularly for women. So are there, are, there, are there rights that you have that must not be violated by your slave master? And in Israel, absolutely. And there's clear laws about it. In Rome, no. And in the New World, no. Um, can you be kidnapped? This is probably the most significant difference between the, is, the, the kind of avadim, the slave, slaves or servants you find in the Bible, and the slaves in the New World, is that yes, you can in the New World, and no, you can't in the Bible, right? Kidnapping, in, the whole New World slave trade is based on kidnapping, isn't it? It's based on stealing people. Whereas that's explicitly prohibited both in the Old and New Testaments. You cannot steal anybody. This is, in fact, when Paul is listing the Ten Commandments in 1 Timothy 1, instead of saying stealing, he lists man-stealing, or enslavers is the word he uses in Greek. So it's quite interesting that for Paul, it's like that's just an obvious example of what you might want to steal. So there's a very strong prohibition of theft of a human. So you might think, well, how would, it, how would anybody ever become an eved then if they weren't being stolen? Well, they would be mainly in two ways. Either you would be conquered in war and therefore taken as a, as a in the way that we would now, my grandfather was in a prisoner of war camp for four years. That's what, that's what you, would happen 70 years ago. His boat was sunk by the Japanese and that's what, they did with people who they conquered in war rather than killing everyone in the ancient world you would take people as avadim and i mean that's not nice and it wasn't nice for my grandpa either or from probably many relatives of ours but it's not the same thing as stealing a person due to making them work on your plantation or whatever but the other main re- and probably the main reason people became avadim in the ancient world is because you would it was a sort of bonded slavery in order to repay a debt that is it's a feudal system broadly I, don't, I have run out of land. I cannot work. My family cannot feed. Therefore, I will sell my labor in perpetuity to this person, and usually for a fixed period of time. I will work for you for seven years to pay it off. That's what Jacob does. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. That Jacob, in effect, becomes an Eved to his uncle Laban. I want to marry your... I mean, not for a great reason, by the way. She's hot. I'll work for you for seven years. Like, that's a very strange... And in the end, he works for 14, of course. That's not probably the best motive. But, but no... <laughs> But notice how different it is from the dynamic and play in either Roman slavery or in New World slavery. Can you use chains on people? No, in Israel, yes, in Rome, yes, in the New World. Can you, and do you torture people? That's strictly prohibited, of course, in the Torah, but it's very common in Rome and very common in New World. Is there physical abuse? Similarly. Uh, this is an interesting question that you probably ha- maybe not have thought about. Would you trust them with weapons? I don't know if you noticed this. Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has a vadim in his house. That is, what you know. The, in some translations, it would say slaves or servants. Right? And then he says, right, guys, somebody's just kidnapped Lot. We're going to go and get them. Right, everybody, man up. We're going to get some weapons, and we're going to go and kill them. You can't imagine that happening on a slave boat in the New World, can you? I mean, it's unthinkable, because you would never... Because the dynamic of parity, of, of feeling like we are together here, would never have worked, because there was such obvious lack of equality or parity. In the ancient world, that wasn't a thing. And you can see that in the pages of Scripture. And similarly, Abraham, when he first gets given the promise that he's going to have a son, Isaac, he is saying, he's saying, look, I'm old. I'm not going to have a baby. Eliezer, my, my Eved, will be my heir. You might have read Galatians, and you notice in Galatians chapter 4, it says, while the son is below the age of, below the age of maturity, he is the same as a, as a, a doulos, as, which is the Greek word for slave. In other words, the rights that a son has when he's under the age of, in our terms, 18, I suppose, or under the age of 12, is the same as somebody who would be born into your household who was an eved or a, a slave. 
In other words, there is a huge difference. And that's why there is a translation issue, because you're trying to find a word that captures all of that and still somehow is faithful to the original, but without all of the understandable sort of historical context that we assume is true of that word that isn't actually true of that word. Now, that may well raise all kinds of other questions. It probably does. But that's, to me, that's a helpful start. But if, you wanna, if it does raise more questions, we can talk about some of them in a moment. But I'd also, I genuinely think that the lecture that Peter Williams did, Slavery in the Bible, is just superb at digging into some of those things. It's not about defending slavery as an institution. What it is is about saying all of those things that were practiced, sometimes with, often with biblical justification, so-called, were, if you read Exodus within its context, totally indefensible given what Exodus is actually talking about. And so I think that might be well worth a look. Okay? Again, on tables, just turn to the person next to you and say, hmm, the interesting thing about that was, or, hmm, I would like to ask, or, hmm, didn't really get that bit, or, I'm completely satisfied, I have no more questions. Any of those is fine. Just, again, what do you think? Okay. We are four down. I mean, not quite, because you never know what questions will follow. Four down, two to go, and then we'll have questions from anybody and everybody. I'm hoping this is helping get 80 or 90% of the way through some of the big questions, but of course there will be some left, which is part of the point. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm almost taking them in ascending order of challenge or difficulty, okay? So second to last, let's go to the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh, Paul, if we can. Um, who hardened Pharaoh's heart and what do we conclude from it? Okay, so you may, be, you may know because you may have read the story of Exodus recently. You may have heard it preached on in the last few days. You may have read Paul's argument in Romans 9. And you may have seen that there is a, a, the language of the hardening of the heart where it says that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And you may therefore have read it and gone, well, that's kind of unfair because that implies that, that Pharaoh's not, got nothing he can do. And therefore, people are... What is this? But people are just randomly chosen and told, right, I'm going to harden your heart. And you're going to become a pantomime villain and there's nothing you can do about it. And then I'm going to get cross with you for doing it. Right? You may have thought of that question. If you haven't, you're probably thinking it now. And therefore, I've created a problem that you didn't have two minutes ago, for which I apologize. But I'm going to try and do something about it. And the way I want to do it is actually just by reading through all of the references to this theme in Exodus 3 through to chapter 10. And you will find something very odd. What we're going to do is going to, I want you to categorize by shouting back to me whether or not the person who's doing the hardening in each example is God or Pharaoh. We will find something strange, okay? First one, the first time this theme comes up, uh, which doesn't use the word hardening, but it's the, the concept behind it, and all the others, I think, do use that word, okay? God speaking in the chapter that actually two weeks back I preached on from the burning bush story. Exodus 3, but I know, this is God speaking, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Pharaoh is not going to let you go unless he's forced to. So I'm going to do that. Okay? Who is responsible for the decision not to let Israel go in that text? God or Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Okay, good. 421, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Who's responsible? God. 7, 3 to 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, obviously. God. Okay? Keep going. 
Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he wouldn't listen, listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. You don't have to keep doing it now because you get the idea, right? So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. That's a Pharaoh. So now we're 3-2. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart. 4-2. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. 5-2. This is Pharaoh. This is God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 6 but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Seven. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Seven, three. And he didn't listen to them. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he didn't let the people of Israel go. Eight, three. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he didn't let them go. And that phrase appears the last three times. So it actually goes three, eight, three, eight, four, eight, five, eight, six. In other words, we have 14 references in this text. The first one says it's Pharaoh, the last one says it's God, and it's 8-6 split. And to make matters worse, a couple of the texts are not 100% clear, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I think you could say, well, could mean was hardened by him, or could mean was hardened by God. We don't really know, and you just have to read into it other things from the text. In other words, it's both throughout, and the writer has deliberately written it to make that very point. I was, funny enough, reading a book that was not about this at all. I was reading C.S. Lewis on prayer this week in his letters to Malcolm. And he just says this extraordinary thing about the way that God and us work together in a decision. And he just used the book. You know, C.S. Lewis can just write these beautiful images that you think, I will always remember that. And he just said, he's just writing this in a letter to a friend. And he said, you know, it's because, of course, God and, God and man are doing these things together. Who can ever tell which droplet moves towards the other one on a window pane when it's raining? Have you ever done that? You just looked at, you know, the, the drops are like this, and then they sort of seem to do this, and they go like that. And it's just such a beautiful image. And, of course, he's saying, he's using it as an analogy for the way that humans and God both act at the same time in the same moment. Now, that is not an easy thing to unpack or explain, because philosophically, we can't, almost by definition, can't get our heads around it. Because you and I live on a plane in which human decisions are the only show in town. Unless, except and theologically, we then say, well, God lives on a plane, in fact, where God's decisions you know, are, are all-powerful and all-sovereign. And what the Bible seems to do is to draw the two together and say, actually, sometimes the same thing can be willed both at a human level and at a divine level, but in neither of the, in, with neither of those two decisions being somehow simply a result of the other one. That there is like divine and human agency together at the same time in the same moment and that's what happens often in salvation and that's what happens in the case in this case in the hardening of pharaoh now you think what's god's purpose in in the hardening god's purpose in the hardening is i want israel to be led out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and to inherit this land that i've destined for them and i'm going to show pharaoh and egypt and all the nations that i am the real god in the way that i do that that's god's agenda pharaoh's agenda is i don't want to lose all my slaves I've built my entire economy on this thing. I don't want them to go because I hate them and I've been oppressing them for the very reason that I hate them and I don't want them to leave because if I do, I'm going to lose an awful lot of my trade, which is, of course, actually very similar to the logic that modern slave owners have used. So you have both layers with different intentions. If you, have a, you could explore it more if you wanted to read Isaiah chapter 10. You find the same thing happening there with God and the king of Assyria. Exactly the same thing. God saying... I'm going to do this. The king of Assyria is going, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. But they're both, in a sense, willing the same outcome. And the analogy I 
I might have even used it here before, actually, but the analogy I often use on this is, um, in fact, it'd probably be better if I had, has anybody got a cylindrical object? Let's, has anybody, anybody carry with them a tube? You guys had tubes of sweets aplenty at the start of this evening, right? Come on, come on. In, that's a time, an egg timer? You brought an egg timer to a seminar with me. That is... <laughs> What does that tell you? That's unbelievable, isn't it? Right, this is a very, very small one, but since you're allowing me to borrow it, I will let you off, Neil. Thank you so much for that. Um, you now have to be two-dimensional creatures for a moment. You can only see in 2D, okay? If you're sitting over there, what, uh, Lauren Stell, what shape is that as a, if you're a two-dimensional creature? It's a circle, right? Um, Ian Francis, what shape is that as a two-dimensional creature? It's a rectangle, yeah? A long, thin rectangle. So, because you and, and, you and, you and I all know that it's both, it's a three-dimensional shape, and therefore that the fact that I, if I'm made to be 2D, I can only see one aspect of it, but actually, oh, right, it's all of them. And in a sense, I think that's as much as we can do when it comes to God's agency and ours. And I think that's what's happening in this story. That the writer, or several, about eight of those texts are saying, it's a circle, Pharaoh did it. And six of those texts are saying, or seven, or whatever, are saying it's a rectangle, God did it. And, of course, the writer, in a way that is very difficult to explain in real terms, says, actually, yes, it is both of those realities, depending on who you're looking at and for how long and why. Okay? So thank you very much for your egg timer. Will it break? I hope not. Okay? You can keep timing me now, Neil. Thank you. Um, So, um, again, that will raise other questions. But I think that dynamic is often at work in the Bible. Uh, It's often at work in... Who's responsible for choosing to be saved? Who's responsible for choosing not to be saved? Who's responsible for persevering in faith? Who's responsible for hardening their hearts? And so on. Again, you can come back to it in a minute. We are now five down, okay? Little bit, again, on your table, a little bit of feedback. This one is a quicker question. This is, I do, or do, I do or do not buy that. As in, some of you, some of you hearing that will go, yeah, that's a mystery, and I, that's pretty much how it is, and I'm okay with that. And others of you go, no, that's not, I'm not okay with that. That is really annoying, and that's caused all these other problems for me, okay? Most of us will know which of those two we are, or the extent to which we are those things. So just quickly tell the other people in your table which you are, and how you feel about it, okay? Okay. So, let's, um, we are now... Very, very familiar with the clapometer. So if you, if you go, that is not good enough. I am more confused than I was when I came in. I am irked. I am frustrated. To some degree, if that is your response, would you clap now? Would you clap now? Oh, the, no, if you are like, no, that is really annoying, and I'm irked by that, and I've now got loads more questions than I started with. Okay? <laughs> You're, I'm so pleased you expressed your view with such clarity. That's fantastic. There's no holding back, okay? And then does that mean that the rest of you are kind of, yeah, that's probably as good as we can do and I'm okay for now? Yeah. But with less passion than your clap, if I may say. So what you, what you, you made up for in quality what you lost in quantity there, I guess. Okay? So that's, that was number five, and then we're going to do the sixth one, and then we will take questions on whatever you want to talk about, okay? Um, divine violence. I... This is not an issue, obviously, that you can, with a bit of clever duck and weave, make go away. It's not that sort of thing. It's something that I think every... A question that you need to start by asking, I think, whenever you're dealing with something problematic in the Bible that you find challenging, is to ask, what is it about this that I find it challenging or upsetting? 
Now, it doesn't mean it, I don't, because often the Bible will be upset by it as well. Have you noticed that? You read the Psalms, you think, wow, an awful lot of the things that I find really difficult about Scripture or about Christianity or about whatever, about God, are vocalized as problems in the Psalms. And some of them are just left there. They're not even resolved. So it may be that the thing you, are, you feel when you have that problem, assuming you do, that lots of people die and that God is responsible, at least in part, in the way we've just seen it, but he is responsible in part. A lot of, one of the things you have to do is just ask, what is it about that that I find hard? And to actually embrace that sense of, dis, of disillusionment or frustration, maybe disillusionment's too strong, but frustration, difficulty, darkness that can sometimes come. Now, some of us, this is an intellectual puzzle. Some of us, it really isn't. Some of us have wrestled for years with this issue. Some of us have said, actually, this has been one of the biggest challenges to my entire faith. And our personalities and our stories are very different, so we will find different things in Scripture hard. But the violence in the... It's not just the Old Testament, of course. It happens in the New Testament as well. You get people less, but you get people being struck down, suddenly killed, for things that we might regard as being quite trivial. They filled out their gift aid form and exaggerated how much they'd given to the offering... (laughs) And then Steve said, right, you're now both going to be killed. And they were. <laughs> now, you see, if you did it in, on a Sunday in here, you'd think, that's very strange. Why is that? So it happens in the New Testament as well. And part of what's going on there, the one, one of the major things that's happening when we read it and find it hard is that we are and should be struggling with the problem of human death. Right? Always. Not just because actually you'd say that person gets struck down. In fact, in the case of the Passover, of course, we're dealing with mainly children who are who die in their sleep right which is awful and it's awful for the in many ways more awful for the parents than it is for the person who dies in their sleep but actually whenever if that child had died in childbirth it would have been horrendous if that child had died as many in the ancient world did that child had died of a disease it would have been horrendous if they died in another way and actually no matter where you you move the problem death is oppressive and awful and evil and shouldn't be part of the world and that's the reason we have a gospel of resurrection right and if you didn't have a problem with death you'd be misreading the whole bible you're supposed to go what is going on here this isn't right and supposed therefore to look in some ways for the rationale behind why do people die at all that's the that is ultimately that's the problem it's the fact that these people are dead and they shouldn't be and actually yes it's awful that they died instantaneously or overnight but in many ways i think we can probably imagine far worse ways to be killed and many people have been, and that doesn't get us out of the problem at all. So what we have to do at one level is just simply ask, theologically then, why do people die? And actually the answer, which we do not like, is goes right back to Genesis 3 and Romans 5. On the day you eat of it, you will die. Right? You, are, you will be, sin will lead you to be severed from God, and the wages of sin is death. Now that's not a popular answer at all, and I'm afraid... And it's not the whole thing to say, and I'm not saying it's the first thing I'd say if I was talking to a grieving person, and it's not the first thing I'd say to someone who had said, I can't believe in Jesus because of this problem in the Exodus story. But I think we've got to also stand back and say the reason why this is a problem in this case is the same as the reason it's a problem in every other case of somebody dying in an unpleasant way, or any way, and that is that death is the... the Paul calls it the last enemy. He said that's, the, that's when we know we're home, is that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why Jesus rose from the dead and didn't do something else. Because it's at the very heart of what needs to be overthrown about this world that's gone wrong. And that's because of sin. 
That doesn't mean every individual dies quickly because they are more sinful than the guy next door. That's not the issue at all. And on this Sunday, people will be preaching about that very point. But it is to say that theologically the reason for death is sin. And that's one of the things we have to think through. I'm going to skip over the plagues in the Pantheon for a moment because that's the one I want, where I want to finish because I think that'll be the one that requires another, another, couple of, another page of, of comment. You also have to stand back and look at Jesus because what happens when sometimes at a street level what happens is people say in the Old Testament God seems pretty angry and kills people and then Jesus comes along and says you should love your neighbor. That's the street level thing. I, I think probably many of us who've read the Bible a bit would know that's a distortion but it is often, you, get, you pick it up a lot and sometimes in Christian circles as well as in sort of more you know, sceptical, secular culture. And at, at which point, it's really important to think about how Jesus spoke about the Old Testament and actually some of the things Jesus said about people in his day as well, which were often pretty fiery. But you can look through a text like Luke chapter 17, where you find Jesus he's basically trying to teach them about the coming of the Son of Man, about when you know, the, the, his, his coming... And he says, right, well, I'm going to give you some examples of what it's going to be like. And then he basically goes through all of the worst stories in the Old Testament of people experiencing crazy judgment from the sky for their sin and says, that's what it'll be like when I come back. And that doesn't make, by the way, I'm making the problem worse in a way, not better. But we have to see it because otherwise we get out of it too easily. And what we say is, that was then. Jesus isn't like that. And actually what you find is, no, Jesus is like that. And the, the difference is, of course, that the basis on which people are rescued from that judgment has changed. But what's not different is that judgment is still being stored up because the wages of sin is death. And so what Jesus does is he lists them and he says, it'll be like in the days of Noah. I, don't think, I think the flood story is about as bad as it gets when it comes to loads and loads of people being wiped out. However you read, and we did that last year in the seminar, but however you read the flood story, a lot of people die. Right? But as an act of divine judgment. And Jesus just goes, yeah, it'll be like that. And then he says it'll be like the destruction of Sodom, when fire and hailstones come out of the sky and kill people. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. He said, he said you know what I mean like her. Why? What happened to her? And some of us are going, what did happen to her? I don't know that story that well. She turns into a pillar of salt. Yeah? She looks back, which some of us would think is not a big deal, although interestingly, it is exactly what the wilderness generation will do with Egypt. We've been free, we've been free. Oh, and she turns into a pillar of salt. And Jesus says, and he's talking to his disciples and those around them saying, you could be like that, watch out, don't let it happen to you. And a number of other examples where Jesus is drawing on those stories and saying, that is the nature of the judgment that by, by being human and sinful you are under and you must be saved. And that's why when people come to him and say, so are these people particularly bad because this tower fell on their heads and killed them? And Jesus says, no, no. It's nothing to do with them being worse. That's not the issue at all. If you don't repent, you're going to perish as well. So Jesus is not as fluffy as sometimes as we think. That doesn't mean he's nasty. It means he's just so burning with both a sense of compassion and justice that he wants to communicate. You have got to see that you are part of the problem as well. You, if you are a sinner, you must repent. And if you don't, you will face judgment. You've got to see it. And of course, that's what the story shouts to us. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment, which Jesus, Jesus shows you that this is not simply, this is not abstract for him. This is not like, I want you to know it, and then I'm going to, but see you later, good luck. It's actually what Jesus does, is he becomes so committed to the fact that people should, rescue, should be rescued, that he becomes not just 
the Passover lamb who is slain, but also the firstborn son who is slain. He's like, if you like in the Passover story, what you have is a lamb being substituted for your firstborn son. And in Christ, God becomes both. Becomes the lamb and the firstborn son at the same time. It's like, this is how much I care about rescuing you from judgment. So whatever else we may do, we can't read the Passover story or any other violent story in the Bible and go, well, God clearly doesn't love us then. It's like, God loved you so much that he became the substitute that you might not go through it. Now, those are three theological perspectives from Scripture as a whole. A fourth one, which this is a bit lighter, I hope, but a bit more fun, show you a couple of pictures of Egyptian gods, but I hope this will help you see that there is another layer to the Egyptian story, which is that mainly the battle taking place in the plagues, which is the main issue we have the problem with, is that the battle taking place is not really between God and Egyptian people, although they are, I'm afraid, part of the problem and therefore they face collateral damage as well, a lot, but it's between God and the Egyptian gods. Okay, so let me introduce you to some of the Egyptian gods. Okay? Happy is their god of the Nile, and that's one of, the, one of the key gods in the Egyptian pantheon, and therefore, first plague, the Nile is turned to blood. Right? This god that you... Because if you... How many of us have been to the Nile Delta anywhere? How many have been to the Nile? Anybody from Egypt, actually? Yeah. That Egypt draws its... All, its whole economy for thousands of years has been based around the fertility of this delta and the fact that the water comes in, obviously the water travels all the way down from Ethiopia, comes, you know, in Uganda, right? where does it end in Lake Victoria, doesn't it? So it comes all the way, 6,000 miles, and then it comes into the Nile Delta. And that's where Egypt's life and story is from. So we are going to now turn that into blood, as if to say, you, God of the Nile, worshipped and venerated by the Egyptians, you are weak. You are about to be overthrown by the real God of the nations, the God of gods. Then there is Heket, who is the goddess of fertility and water. And that's the individual represented in this... Do you see this grey stone here that's a picture of the goddess of fertility who has a head like a frog? you see that? Is the picture large enough for you to see that it looks like a frog? Okay? Well, anyway. If not, it looks like a frog. Um, and you can look up Hecate. But, again, so then you have this plague. The plague of the Nile is turned to blood, and then you have this plague of frogs. which comes out and says, we are now going to take... You, of course, out of the water could destroy fertility... Effectively, there is now a curse on not just the Nile, but a curse on the frog-like god, the goddess of fertility and water. Then there is the Geb, the god of the earth. And the two, actually, in some ways, if you see an Egyptian painting of their gods as a pantheon, what you'll sometimes notice is that there's this sort of the earth god lying down like this, and then the sky god over and above like that. And the two of them are lovers, as well as being brothers and sisters. Don't get me started. But they are... Um, and so they're the two... There's, that's Geb and then Nut, who we'll meet in a moment looks like the word nut, and they are the, they feel like the two deities. And interestingly, when it says, when it's described how the gnat plague, which is the next plague to come, is going to emerge, it doesn't say, and then gnats just came out of the air. It says that actually gnats came from the dust of the earth. So I mean, in other words, I'm going to turn the earth into gnats, and they're going to come around seeing everybody. That's taking on the god Geb. The god Hepri, the god of creation. Again, there's this, you can see the picture of... Um, him as well. You see that sort of beetle-like thing that he has for a head? That's not because somebody with duff clip art has taken a picture of an Egyptian deity and then stuck a beetle on it for no reason. That's the way that they represented the god. And so again, you have Capri is represented as the god, the, the, the flying insect, and therefore there's a plague of flies which takes over the land. That's the fifth plague. Sorry, fourth plague. They have Isis, goddess of medicine, and so everybody gets boils. You have Nut, the goddess of the sky, so hailstones fall from the sky and bring judgment upon Israel. 
You have Seth, the god of the desert and the god of storms, so a storm of locusts comes out of the desert. You have Ra, the sun god, who's one of the few Egyptian gods that some of us may have heard of. He used to have an office in my management consulting firm that was called Ra. They were named after Ra, Amon, Hathor, Isis. They're all named after Egyptian. I don't know why. Um, I suppose it's the way we do it after missionaries, but it's a peculiar habit. But Ra is the sun god. And again, what's the ninth plague? The sun is turned to darkness. You have no power here. Israel's God has... Because you've got to remember the backdrop here, of course, is you guys are keeping Israel enslaved. I'm going to set them free. Pharaoh's going to say no, and I'm going to say, let my people go. No, let my people go. No, bang, 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 bang. And all of these gods are being taken down one at a time, actually very systematically, as you can see. And then finally, what you've got to remember is that the chief gods in the Egyptian pantheon, although we would think the sun god or something was the big one, in Egypt's pantheon, which a pantheon just means arrangement of gods, the chief god in Egyptian pantheon was Pharaoh himself. He is regarded as the god of gods. Most ancient kings thought they were. That's what's so unusual about Israel, because they regard the Lord as the God of gods. But most powerful kings, Nebuchadnezzar did it, Xerxes did it, Pharaoh thinks he's the God of gods, and he is the ultimate power, and so it's like he's saved him for last, and ultimately the only way of cutting off his posterity is to literally cut off his posterity, that is, his line, his children. And that's, in that particular context, why that happened. None of which, I think, is to say, therefore, we will read the Exodus story and go, yeah, no problem here. I'm not saying that. In fact, I think if we did read it as if it wasn't challenging, we would be, to some degree, misreading it. But what I hope it does is to provide a sort of both historical and theological rationale in the context of this much larger biblical story about what death means and what sin does. Now, that may or may not be satisfying, um, and we'll find out, I guess. We now have about 20 minutes to talk about what you want to talk about. But again, why don't you just go on your tables and then say, right, given all of that, I came in with these questions. You spoke at the beginning. I came in with these questions, or this one. That's the one I want to talk about. What do you want to talk about now, given that we've now had a go at lots of those questions? Okay. I am going to get, I think, we have a couple of roving microphones. And there may even be one or two people who are going to carry the roving microphones. Ga- is Gary in the house? Gary is there. We have a microphone here. There's another one here. Okay. Who has a question? Gary, you're, you're empowered here, okay? I can see Shani, I can see Martin, I can see very, back to the back. Henrietta looks as excited as I've ever seen her. And I tell you, this is, if you know Hetty, she gets pretty excited about a lot of things, but she now looks desperate to ask a question, so we must get her in whatever's happening. Okay, and then we've got a, this man here as well. Um, Andrew, uh, in the Bible it often refers to gods as purely man-made, of wood or iron or stone, but when you suggested yeah. that in the parades God was fighting the Egyptian gods, mm. are we to suppose that these gods have some sort of um, spiritual, like, satanic substance, like their little mini-Satans or... Such a good question. That is such a good question. Can we give a round of applause for that question? That is, that is, oh, that is, if it makes you feel better, Paul takes three chapters working that one through in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 because it's such a big issue. What is the status of a God with a lowercase g in the ancient world? I think the short answer is I think the Bible writers are affirming both things at the same time. They're affirming this is nothing. This is simply man-made. 
It is, a, it is not God at all, and yet they are also saying there is an idolatrous and demonic power that stands behind it that genuinely does bind people in slavery. And I think to some degree we can see how both of those things are true, even in, many of us can, in, almost in practical experience. And say, is, so if I said to you, for instance, is, is sex a god? Yeah? And you could see what I meant, probably, if I said yes and no. No, it is not the creator of the heavens and the earth. It is not the highest good. It is not the thing that we should all pursue with our whole lives and will satisfy us when we have it. But yes, in that it becomes a god to people, and it can, if, if abused, it can enslave, it can trap, it can bind, it can oppress. And it actually has, in some senses, a, a principality, in Pauline language, behind it, which is very powerful and oppressive. And I think, in a way, it's the both and that we're dealing with. So the, the key places to go there, I think, 1 Corinthians 8, we know that a god has no real existence. There's only one god. An idol has no existence. There's only one god. And yet... Many people, there are many gods and lords that people worship, and therefore we need to be careful not to enter into idolatrous relations with them. And you get the same thing in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 45. This is a block of wood. You're stupid for worshipping it. And yet, of course, the gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo, are going to bow down to the God of Israel. You get a bit in Deuteronomy as well. So it's a really important theme. There is a yes and no. But if the question is, is there a spiritual reality behind these? I think the answer is yes. Great question. Really good. Over here, Andrew. Okay. Um, it's, it's not really a question, but just <laughs> asking you to comment on... Because um, when you read through things like the Book of Kings, um, it just kind of feels like there's this gratuitous violence going on all the time. You know, wars, kings fighting against kings. And it kind of almost feels like it, um, they're killing thousands of people, mm. almost for the fun of it kind of thing. Um, and it also kind of feels like it's, there's a consent there to it. So um, that's the thing I've kind of come with tonight, that I'm struggling to get my head around. So give an example of a... Do you mean, when, do you mean battles between Israel and yeah. Syria, for instance? Or? Yeah, it, well, it kind of... It, at one point, I can't, I can't remember where it is, but it kind of talks about this was the season for the, the, the kings went out to war against sure. each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, somebody does... Um, I think I was reading it a couple of days ago, but um, somebody did something to somebody else, and it kind of seemed fairly trivial. And then, you know, thousands of people went out to battle. And, yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of that in Kings. And, you know, hun- literally hundreds of thousands I, I th- were killed. My, my read on, on one and two, violence in one and two Kings is that actually the, the, there is a... I think the thing you're saying is actually quite straightforward in a way, but I think there is a harder version of it, if I can put it that way. But I think that... The bit, I, because I think the Runners Who Kings is almost a sustained, like a, a sort of, you know, add them up, it's probably, what, 40, 45, 46 chapter rant, if, in our terms, about the foolishness and gradual collapse of Israel's kings when they should have been living by the Deuteronomic covenant and they didn't, and therefore they went into exile. It's basically a long apologetic for how did we end up in exile given we have these promises? And the, the answer is because again and again and again and again in an almost boring cycle of violence and not just violence actually but mainly idolatry which then led into sexual immorality and violence and those three always go together in the bible or regularly do this is effectively the purpose of one and two kings is not to say hey isn't this great you know gee who came in and massacred all these guys it's like no 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 this is to show you the wheels coming off the wagon Having said which, I think there, is a, there are some pe- texts in Scripture, probably, and there may be one or two in 1 and 2 Kings, then I would say in, 
in 2 Kings 18 and 19, where you have the invasion of the Assyrians, where the angel of the Lord goes out and does it. And that, to me, is a bit harder and is more like you have to do some of the stuff we've just done here because that is not the, the, king's, the, king's, the season for kings going out to war is like, actually, that happened until the First World War, that people literally would fight in the summertime because they weren't, well, no, you just, otherwise you just get bogged down. So there's, or you just fight in spring and summer because you don't want to go out. So that's what that is. But underneath it, there is the sort of the stupidity of human kings and their cycle of Im- idolatry, immorality, and violence. But when the angel of the Lord does it, there is a defense of Judah, particularly. And, of course, there's that one scene where the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 people in one night. Now, you, you could say, and I would, they are all soldiers. They are the army of Assyria. They have just been threatening. And, in fact, what the Assyrians did was they used to... You see that in the British Museum as well. Like, bragging rights about the way that they used to skin people when they conquered their cities and throw them off. Some of us have seen those tableaus in the British Museum. As, you know just dark, depraved stuff, and so you could say, this is the God of justice defending his people. And it is, but I think that, in a way, poses me more challenge, whereas what the, king, the, the kings of, you know, the many, many, Jehoram and Jehu and Ahab and Omri and all of these guys going to war against Ben-Hadad or whoever, I, think, I don't think the writer is commending most of that at all. There are occasions where, of course, Elisha steps in or Elijah steps in and says, God is going to fight, in this battle, God is going to fight for you and not for your enemies. But usually that happens to Judah when you have kings who are of righteousness and they're being oppressed. So I would say as a general answer, that's how I would go at it. But there are some which are harder and I think they're more like this story. I hope that's as a start of a 10 anyway. Okay, did we we find Hetty? Or we find Shani? Okay, we have Shani. Um, We will come to you as well, don't worry. My question's based on the Peter Williams table. Um, So does, I will watch the sermon or lecture or whatever it is, but um, does he speak about the kind of intergenerational aspect of slavery slash servitude in terms of, so with transatlantic slavery, your children would then become slaves. Is what was that the case in like Israel and Rome? And also on the point of, um, I've always thought it was really interesting how Miriam was really accepting of Moses when, um, so not Miriam, the Egyptian um, girl, queen, daughter, daughter, thank you, um, was so accepting of Moses does that kind of, I guess, based on the understanding of the table, yeah. if they weren't seen as, I yeah, guess, yeah, yeah. with transatlantic slavery, you know, yeah. it was a view that these people are not human. Yeah, yeah. Does that kind of help to understand that? Sure. And also just in terms of, like, I guess, racially and in terms of ethnicity, yeah. did the Hebrews and Egyptians look similar if yeah, races cool. were okay. like blending? Those are really, all three really good questions. Um, <laughs> Peter Williams doesn't go into the intergenerational thing specifically that I can recall. I've seen it a couple of times. I don't think he does. But I think the... But he makes quite a lot of re- legal regulation about, obviously, some of which I put on the table, but even things like if after, se- you, after seven years you let the guy go free. And if after seven years the guy wants to stay in your family, he has to bore an all through his ear and say, I love my master, I want to stay. This is Exodus 21. Now, that just... That just changes the terms of the discussion somewhat, doesn't it? Because, one, who in the transatlantic slavery context would ever do that? Like, say, so, yeah, I really want to stay with this guy. And, uh, and of course, it also shows you that there is a, a more of, it is more like a, a live-in family member. It's more like, uh, like I say, there are, you can, in an upstairs-downstairs context, you could imagine someone doing that. They probably did. Um, but in a, in a sort of, you know, whips and chains and the rest, you, you would obviously never get that. And I think that, sh- that helps us 
Um, because obviously seven years, I mean, yeah, that's not, therefore you've got generations in perpetuity being enslaved. Um, and of course, if you were from another nation in the nation, you could be circumcised and actually receive the same privileges as Israel, which, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, many of them did. Um, when it comes to the, the racial dimension and the picking of the baby, I mean, I think what we're supposed to see in the, in the picking of the baby story is whether or not this, this is a ba- like, it's the difference between systematic evil and trying to do something. It's, it's like the same thing they said about the Nazis, isn't it? If I'm pressing a button about moving a train from here to there with Jews on it, I don't tend to notice, but if I actually have to go up and kill someone myself. It's a, and I think in some ways the story is supposed to say this is macabre and wicked, and yet, again, women rather than men, as we've seen already in the series, there's a compassion for the child. Um, but I don't, it's, it's, it's racial in the sense that it's, it's based on fear and tribal identity and religious identity in a sense, ethnic identity. But the, 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 the colours of the people were clearly different, but not as different as, for instance, you'd have in the New World, where you've got people who would almost categorise entirely by colour. That's not... They generally colour... We've actually spoken about it before, haven't we? The colour was not a, the primary way in which they would make distinctions in the ancient world. They actually just don't really use language of... No, there's no such thing as a white person, I think, until about the 16th century. It's just not categories people use. Um, and so I think in, in their context, you've got religious affiliation and tribal affiliation, which is very stark. And it's actually about opp- the oppression of a, a servile race, but not from the perspective of colour, but more from the perspective of your, who your God is and the fact that you work for us and we don't want you to take over. And we're worried you're going to line up with our enemies and kill us. That's the motive, I think. Um, but it does tell us something, yes, about the nature of slavery in, or the avadim in that sense, because obviously it's not the sense, I own you, and therefore as a person I hate you and dehumanise you at every individual level. But I still think we've got to see behind it, at the end of chapter one, they ruthlessly, which is clearly meant to, meant to evoke that, made them work as slaves, and they beat them, and they said, now you're going to make the bricks without straw. So... You have a structural injustice being perpetrated on the basis of your race, but not necessarily your colour. But at the same time, there are individuals within the Egyptians who show mercy and kindness, and, of course, many of them who flee in the end, because the Egyptians, this is what we often forget, and Peter Williams does a great job on this, the Egyptians are slaves of Pharaoh as well. As in, that's, they are often described as the avadim of Pharaoh, because they also technically are living on Pharaoh's land, and they owe him honour and allegiance as well, like a feudal lord. And so there's nobody, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as a free person, really. Even the king is a slave of someone, just of the gods. So it's, it's complicated. But I think, yes, that does help us at least. Um, effectively, what I think you, you and I are both doing is saying, let's, let's be really clear about how much blue water there is and should be between anything that the Bible says is either normal or acceptable and what was happening in North America and the Caribbean in the last few hundred years. So, and there is lots of reasons to do that, and I think the lecture is good, but that, I think that you, you're rightly saying that may be another one. Okay, David. Thanks. Um, could you comment on the logistics of getting hundreds of thousands of people across the Red Sea, even when dry, and moving through the desert? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, I, I really don't think I can. Um, in, interestingly, in a, am I right? You're not going to use it, Neil. But the, the, are you going to use the big numbers or? Okay. There may or may not. On, but you're in the Downham site anyway. But um, Neil and I were talking through Neil's message this morning, 
And one of, the, one of the ideas was to use a number of visual representations for extremely large crowds. So how many people did we think Harry and Meghan's wedding? Was that? Uh, William and Kate's was half a million, was it? 500,000, okay. Um, so you got you sort of Wembley, 80,000, that, that's sort of up, up to... So you, you've got to try and visualize the number of people, I think, seeing at the presidential inauguration of Barack Obama on the Mall. I don't actually know the number, but it was well up there in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It might have been a million or more. And so I think, in a way, you're going, we've got to try and picture that and then imagine them all running for their lives, um, but in an orderly fashion. What, all we have, really, on the logistics... Interestingly, it's a joke in a way, but they do do it in an orderly fashion because they are structured according to their tribes. It is quite interesting that they genuinely do that. They, they make them all according to pretty much like divisions. In fact, when they leave, given it's men, women, and children, the language the writer uses describes it almost as if it's like an army, according to their divisions or according to their groups. And so in a sense, there was that sense of order. And of course, the, the, then the camp is very specifically laid out with three tribes to the north, south, east, and west, as you know. Um, beyond that, No. I am afraid, I, I don't know what a logistics expert in the room might make of it. I'm sure there is a way of doing it, but who knows. Okay, next one. Let's, okay, so Hetty, and then I'd love, I'd love this guy to be able to get in, and then we'll... Okay? So, um, after the plagues, Egypt would be totally depleted, and, but it still thrived, it still rose up. So we're assuming that some of the Israelites must have stayed because their livestock lived, their children lived. So we just wondered what your... Sorry, some of the Israelites stayed, stayed. in Egypt. Stayed, stayed because they stayed with their, their masters. They saw it. That, you know, Sorry, there, there I a, have been confusing. So, um, the, so the, 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 when the Israelites came out of Egypt after the plagues, Egypt was totally depleted. But it rose again, Yes. as we know today. Yeah. So how could that have been? How would it have rose again? Did some of the Israelites choose to stay? No, sorry, I was confusing. When I said about the, the line in Exodus 21 about serving your master is talking about Israel after, this is at Sinai now, a long time after, they, well, not a long time, but within a few weeks of them leaving Egypt. This is about when you conquer another nation and they become your servants or someone sells themselves to you rather than about Egyptian slavery at that point. So I've probably been, not been very clear there. Um, but, but, you, how did Egypt rise up well, everything was depleted? Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's, you, you don't... We've we got to remember, you see, total war as we have it now, that is, the entire country is at war, is only 100 years old, really. We didn't... The, the standing armies didn't, you, for most of history, haven't existed. Um, I think Cromwell was the, was the first, actually, in the English Civil War. It's very unusual, until very recently, to have a large percentage of the country nationalised for, for military service. And so Egypt is, you've got Pharaoh and his chariots, but you're not talking about millions and millions of people dying. Um, it's just not at that scale. You've obviously got firstborn children, you've got a lot of dramatic plagues, particularly around the Nile, but the nation as a whole survives, and, and, and the vast majority of the population of Egypt are probably still okay. If you see, I mean, they've lost people in their homes, but they, and of course it's a tragedy, but they're not, they haven't been decimated in the sense that the nation is no more. And that would be true of the Assyrians later as well. Um, and, but they, but it, they do take a pounding. And actually, they, given the, how, how majestic their empire was at its height, of course, the, the pyramids are from before this period. Um, and so their, their high point is before this period. They actually go into subsidence really between around now and they begin, they begin to resurface in the biblical story in the sort of 7th, 8th centuries. So there's about five or 600 years of Egypt being a lesser power, and they lose control of Canaan altogether in this period. So they are very 
depleted. Um, but yeah, over time, they're just like, like an Arnie movie. I'll be back. I mean, and they are, you know, they, and they, they keep resurfacing, but um, like whack-a-mole, I suppose. Um, okay, who's next? We've got to be very quick here. Yeah. Hang on. Hi there. Um, great seminar so far. I really enjoyed it. Quick question. So in the biblical story, a lot of other cultures, ancient cultures, um, talk about the flood. Um, is there anything similar about the Exodus story? So do other cultures talk about yeah, you know, the question. Exodus story? And is there any other literature um, outside of Israel about it? No. Um, not, the, the interesting thing about the flood story is, of course, that they are, there's a number of other cultures who all tell the same, uh, the same, the bare bones of the narrative are the same, but the theological weight they attribute is completely different. So there clearly was a cataclysmic flood in Mesopotamia and somewhere in the third millennium BC, it would seem, and, and everybody told the stories their own way. Whereas with this, this is something that happened to a particular group of people, but it wasn't a sort of trope that happened all over the place and everyone has an Exodus story. Uh, they don't. And in fact, the times the Exodus is mentioned in any other stories, of other, in any other nations, are referring to the fact that Israel, were, by their God, is supposed to be the God who brought them out from Egypt. Because for a very long time, that's how Israel was known. It was like their, that was their calling card, you know. Um, so, but there's no, there's no sort of equivalent of a Sumerian or an Akkadian or a Babylonian exodus narrative of their own no, that I know of. I mean, it might be that there is, but I've never heard of one. Okay. We've got time just for two more questions. So. I don't know whether I'm wrong, but I thought that um, there's actually been some uh, physical evidence of the uh, chariots and, and that in the, in the Red Sea. Uh, was it, am I imagining that? That, that, that we've, that's actually been found. It is, it is very possible that you're not imagining it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I suppose to... I don't think there is... Uh, what's the best way of putting this? Uh, because sometimes things like that are reported and, are, and the significance of the event, which as a Christian you would say, there you go, that proves the exodus happened. Actually, an archaeologist is saying... We found a wheel, and, and Egypt, we know Egyptians had wheels in this period, and yeah, so there was, you know, and I, so I think the, the interpretation is everything on something like that. It wouldn't surprise me if they, any more than it would if you found, you know, a, a wreck of a large battleship on the floor of the ocean today, but I don't, I think what, that doesn't prove that, you know, the Battle of Jutland took place, it proves that people had ships in that period, you see what I mean? So I, I, I would probably... I would, I would say that may well, very well be true. It's probably, probably is true. But whether or not that demonstrates anything about the historicity of the Exodus is a totally different question, I think. Okay, I think this will probably be, better be the last question. Bring us home. Take the anchor leg. No, seriously, Andrew, I want to just simply say thank you very much. I, I think and what you've done tonight is, um, is almost beyond words. Because you've spoken of two big things to me, and um, in terms of you stirred my heart. One was about violence. And the other one was about death. Because when you talk about violence, you're talking about that God is passionate about love. But you also reverse it. You say God is also passionate about justice. So that makes me begin to see people differently. How I must begin to understand that the Great Commission is God's heart. Andrew, thank you. And you also thank made me mention about... Sorry, I'm not a microphone person. Can someone hold this for me? Hold this for me, sorry. Okay? So, because... We'll, because we'll, we'll, <laughs> I'm loving this. Because I, 
seriously, Andrew, I, I wish I'll have to go listen to this over and over again because it's making me see my neighbor differently. That if they don't have God in them, as you rightly say, there's something called judgment coming. I know we are friends. I know we talk about the best football team in England, or actually the world, Arsenal. But sorry. But, 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 but sorry, there's something more to life. And that is unless God is present. And you, you said something about the Passover lamb, that God actually came, walked the surface of the earth, paid the price. Unless I begin to see that in my relationship with the people around me, then, but thank you, you just stir that up again in me, that God is passionate about love. But more than anything, he's passionate about justice. Andrew, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I can't beat that, so thank you very much. Obviously, that may well leave all kinds of questions. Hillary has one or two things which you just need to say at an organizational level just before you go, if that's okay. Um, but thank you so much for coming out. And I hope, obviously, I can, you can always like, email, get in touch if there's something you think this is actually really significant. There may be other resources we can send your way if that would help. But um, thank you for coming out.